Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast. Uh, because this episode reviews Carrie and the nature of Carrie involves heavy bullying, I wanted to preface the podcast with a brief discussion about bullying. As you know, bullying is as prevalent today as it was when Carrie was published in 1974. In fact, with the ubiquity of social media, it has evolved into even more mean-spirited and anonymous ways to hurt others. If you know someone who is being bullied, don't hesitate to reach out to that person or inform someone that can do something about it. Don't forget that any kind of action you take can help, and you'll never know the effect of how you can help someone until you try to. There are a number of resources to help victims of bullying, such as the Trevor Project, the National Center for Bully Prevention, Stop Out Bullying, and StopBullying.gov. If you have witnessed bullying and wish to report it, there are a number of helpful websites that you can use to report anonymous um, bullying, including Cyberbully Hotline, and I'm going to spell the next one because I won't be able to pronounce it correctly, S-P-R-I-G-E-O dot com. And without further ado, the very first episode of the Stephen King cast. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Just like the guy whose feet are too big for his bed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the work of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. And because this is the first episode of the Stephen King cast, there's only one book I could have possibly started with, and that's the one that started it all 1974's runaway hit, Carrie. So I just want to thank everyone for, for coming and stopping by, and, and before we get into the actual review, I, I just want to put the podcast into a little bit of context as to why I'm here recording about Stephen King in the first place. Uh, the first reason is I, I enjoy podcasts, I enjoy what they're able to do for me, uh, you know, I listen to a lot of them, um, and pretty much it, it's all around, um, you know, television and movies and entertainment and just the cultural conversations of of, you know, movies and the analyses of movies and television at a particular time. And it's just good for me because I just like to, you know, for instance, after work, you know, drive around for a little bit, put on a podcast and just decompress. Um, and one day I woke up and uh, I saw that there was a podcast, um, the the Castle of Horror, the guys that do the Castle of Horror, they were reviewing um, the It miniseries two-parter. And I said, you know what? I... No one ever really reviews Stephen King stuff, so I went on iTunes and I looked for some Stephen King podcasts. I found some, but for the most part, it's it's a graveyard. So I thought about it, I thought about it. a couple months went by, um, and I, I realized that if there wasn't a podcast that sounded like one I would like to listen to, then you know I, I could then create the kind of podcast that I would like to listen to, and. When it comes to Stephen King, I, I just I know for me growing up, uh, Stephen King was a huge part of the, the the pop culture conversation. And nowadays, for whatever reason, and I don't know why, he's not as he's not as talked about. He is still a household name. Don't get me wrong, but he's not a name that comes up in conversation as much. You know, I remember when I was growing up, there were commercials for Stephen King books on the television, and I don't ever remember any commercial for any book i don't even remember commercials for the 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 harry potter book so i mean that has a very strong distinction he he tapped into something and he and he spoke to us and we listened and we responded very well there was something about stephen king that 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 we liked and we wanted and every year uh there were there was a movie at least at least one movie coming out in the theaters based on his works and then there was the the whole period of time where there was the the abc um you know, miniseries, which was an event. And then at some point it just stopped. It died away. And I, I don't know, I don't know exactly when that, that is. And I don't know what the, the, um, success of this podcast is going to look like. Success to me could just mean that that one person out there is listening to it. But if that one person goes and talks to someone else about Stephen King and hasn't thought about Stephen King in a while, then I will have done my job. I, I just, I, I want to help put Stephen King back in the cultural conversation. Um, you know, every, you know, every Sunday for, for 13 weeks, everyone talks about Game of Thrones. Um, and, and they're talking about, you know, George R. R. Martin. And for, for years, 
uh, J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter was part of the the conversation, and and even um, uh, you know Twilight uh, was part of the cultural conversation to the extent that you don't really see Stephen King being able to hit anymore. So, like I said, I just I want people to talk about Stephen King, and you know if you're joining us and you've read a couple Stephen King's works, um, you know we're gonna week by week go through each one of Stephen King's works in the chronological chronological order of publication. Um, so this might be good for you to, you know, like say, oh, you know, I never got around to, to, to reading Cujo. Um, so that, that'll be exciting. You know that Cujo will be coming up. Um, you know, and if you have read all Stephen King's works, you know, you know, you, you can definitely reread, you know, with me, or you can just pop on uh, the podcast and listen to, to my thoughts. So which brings us to the structure of, of this particular podcast. Uh, each week, it, it's me. Um, and I'm just recording this when, when I have time. I, I am going to be uh, releasing one podcast a week, and it's just my thoughts um, and my analysis of one particular uh, work um, a week, and I will publish that. And if there is a corresponding uh, film adaptation, I will review that the next week before moving on to the next book in chronological order. And because this is output from me, I'm going to need your help. I want this to be... Um, a, a discussion, an ongoing conversation. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to need some feedback. I want to hear your thoughts so that I can share them, you know, on, on the air. And uh, you'll be able to reach me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So I, I just, I really don't want this to be just me. There's no fun in that. You know, please, you know, reach out and, and, and send me your emails. Um, the structure of this podcast, I was inspired by... Um, the, the podcast Looking Back at Lost, and if you were a fan of that television show, um, Matt, uh, the, the podcaster uh, from Looking Back at Lost, did a phenomenal job reviewing each episode in all six seasons, and it was just him every now and then. He, he did have a guest, but it was just his thoughts. Um, he, did a, he did a great job, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very much borrowing the structure because it, it worked for Lost, and I hope that it works for the Stephen King um, works as well. So you might be wondering, uh, why Stephen King and why now? Um, if he is fallen out of the, the cultural conversation, what, what's the gain of talking about Stephen King? Well, I, you know, nowadays people, uh, you know, we're binge watchers. You know, I mean, I, I have Netflix and my wife and I love binge watching, you know, seasons of television at any given time. And uh, that, that that's how we... We ingest our media nowadays, um, but the summer between my sixth grade and seventh grade years of middle school, I was not a binge viewer of television. I was a binge reader of Stephen King books. In March of my sixth grade year, I uh, came home from school. It was a half day, and I borrowed my best friend's copy of the, the paperback edition of it, and that was my first Stephen King book. I, I had been a reader; I loved reading. I always loved reading, but it was my first Stephen King book. I had always been familiar with Stephen King. I had seen a bunch of his movies, um, and this was right around the time that that it, uh, the TV series, was coming out. And I had seen the commercials. And I was very, very interested. And that paperback edition has that striking, horrifying picture of of Tim Curry, just his white face and the red hair against the the black background. Um, and I was very, very fascinated. And it's one it's one of those things. I, I don't know what my life would have been like if I hadn't picked up that book, if I hadn't read it. Um, and as Stephen King books go, it's it's a pretty heavy book to start with, both thematically and literally. It's a thousand-something pages, and I, I just ingested it in six days. I couldn't stop. It was a whole different style of writing. I didn't know that people could write like that. And what struck me, and I wasn't able to use this word at the time, even though it's how I felt, but um, what struck me was the authenticity of it. Um, I didn't know how old Stephen King was at the time. Yeah, 30s, late 30s, 40s, early 40s. Um, but as the age group of the main characters of of that novel, I was I, I caught it. I got it. I understood that that he had something special about his writing because I had read uh, authors works uh, of childhood and I hadn't noticed before I read it that they were all just trying to recreate the sensations of childhood and the magic and the wonder and the, the trials and tribulations. But King felt it. 
and he he imbued a magic onto every page and he captured childhood the way in which very very few authors uh do um a couple noble exceptions out there robert mccammon's boy's life is an incredible read um and i strongly recommend that but from it i i was hooked and that spring and summer man i just i read everything that he had written up until that point and it was a it was a whole new world, and it taught me how to be a better reader. He he pushed my own limits of of my imagination. He he challenged me to think harder and and to imagine deeper. And I'm forever grateful for um for what he was able to give to me. Um, and I just I strongly believe that that everyone out there is one book away from being a lifelong avid reader. And for me, the, the book that cemented my love of, of reading and the powers of reading, um, it was it. And uh, so specifically, I don't remember reading Carrie for the first time. It was in that summer. Um, but I, I can tell you right now that, that reading it for a second time for the purposes of this podcast, it, it struck me on a number of levels uh, that I'm going to get into throughout the course of the podcast. But his talent is on display right from the get-go. Um, there really is something about him, uh, you know, good writers, you know, with, uh, you know, whether they are authors of literature with a capital L or they're pop culture, um, authors, you know, whatever, whatever, there's something special that they're able to distill truth and action and humor, um, and, and character and, uh, recreate it on a page and to create something that hadn't previously existed and put it in your mind. That is, that's magic. Um, and I really want to explore the magic of, of Stephen King in this podcast. So before we get into the, the, the review itself, um, I'm going to read from Wikipedia the, the, the synopsis of it. So we, we have that in context and then I can build on that a little bit more. So um, there are three parts to the novel, um, starting with part one, Bloodsport. Ever since grade school, Carrietta Carrie White has been the subject of abuse from her unstable fundamentalist mother, Margaret White, who broke away from mainstream Christianity and found her own religion, of which she and Carrie are apparently the only adherents. Carrie doesn't fare much better at school. She has been a social outcast since first grade. At the beginning of the novel, Carrie, a senior at the Thomas Ewan Consolidated High School in fictional Chamberlain, Maine, has her first period while showering after gym class. Carrie is terrified, having no concept of menstruation, and believes she is bleeding to death. Instead of sympathizing with the frightened Carrie, her classmates taunt her and throw tampons and sanitary napkins at her. As Carrie is aided by her gym teacher, Rita Disjardin, a light bulb in the shower explodes. When Margaret finds out about the incident, she beats Carrie, claiming that this is God's way of punishing her, and locks her in a closet for hours to pray for forgiveness. The next day, Miss Desjardin orders the children who taunted Carrie to serve a week's detention in the gym. One of the bullies, Chris Harginson, refuses to attend and is suspended for three days. She is also banned from Ewan High's prom. However, another girl, Sue Snell, feels remorse for her prior actions and offers to become Carrie's friend. Meanwhile, Carrie gradually discovers that she has telekinetic powers and learns how to keep them under control. With prom fast approaching, Sue convinces her handsome boyfriend, Tommy Ross, to ask Carrie to prom as a way for her to finally fit in. Margaret forbids her from attending, but Carrie uses her powers to help stand up for herself. Smarted from being banned from the prom, Chris and her boyfriend, Billy Nolan, hatch a plan to humiliate Carrie in front of the entire school. Chris has Billy kill two pigs at a nearby farm and drain their blood into two buckets. Billy then rigs the buckets over the stage on a rafter hidden out of sight. On prom night, Carrie is tormented by Margaret begging for her not to leave the house. Margaret begins hurting herself, trying to convince Carrie to stay home and pray with her, but Carrie leaves anyway and arrives with Tommy. She is nervous at first, but everyone begins treating her equally. Soon, Carrie begins enjoying herself and Tommy becomes romantically attracted to her. Meanwhile, Sue is at home, continually worrying about what's happening at the prom. At the same time, she wonders if she is pregnant with Tommy's baby. Part 2. Prom Night. May 27, 1979. 
Carrie and Tommy are elected prom king and queen after Chris's friends Tina Blake and Norma Watson slip fake ballots into the ballot box as part of Chris's plan. Once on stage, Carrie and Tommy are drenched with the pig blood by Chris. One of the buckets falls on Tommy's head, fatally wounding him. Carrie again becomes the subject of her classmates' ridicule and decides to use her telekinetic abilities to exact revenge upon Ewan High. She locks the gym doors and turns on the sprinkler system, electrocuting two students. She then sets fire to the gym, leaving everyone inside to die. Carrie walks home, leaving a trail of destruction in her wake. Sue rushes to Ewan High and watches it explode, which destroys a portion of the town. Carrie returns home and confronts a crazed Margaret who claims that she has conceived Carrie due to marital rape. When Margaret stabs Carrie, she kills her mother by telekinetically stopping her heart. Mortally wounded, Carrie makes her way to the local roadhouse where her mother was raped and she was conceived. Chris and Billy, who happened to be making love inside, received word from Billy's friend of what had happened to Chamberlain. Billy plans on leaving town with Chris. They exit the roadhouse just as Carrie arrives and attempt to run her down with Billy's car. However, Carrie telekinetically sends the car crashing into the roadhouse, killing Chris and Billy. Carrie then collapses in the parking lot from blood loss. Sue arrives on the scene and finds Carrie in the parking lot. Carrie, weak and dying from blood loss, speaks telepathically with Sue, blaming her for the prank. After scanning Sue's mind, she realizes that Sue had nothing to do with it and set her up with Tommy to make amends for the locker room incident. Carrie cries out for her mother and dies, which Sue experiences personally due to their brief psychic connection. She screams as blood runs down her leg and realizes that she has miscarried her unborn child. Part 3. Wreckage Four months later, Chamberlain has become a virtual ghost town. By then, 440 people, including 67 people who were at Ewan High as seniors, are confirmed dead, and 18 are still missing. The Black Prom incident is one of the worst disasters in American history and is considered a national tragedy worse than the assassination of J John F. Kennedy. After interviewing the survivors of the prom, scientists begin to take telekinesis seriously, and schools across the country start to crack down more on bullying. Miss Desjardin and Principal Henry Grail, who had managed to escape from the prom, are consumed with regret, sadness, and guilt over not reaching out to Carrie sooner and resign their positions, with Desjardin stating that she would rather commit suicide than teach again. In 1986, Sue writes a memoir of her traumatic experience, My Name is Susan Snell, which warns the reader not to forget about the events that took place in Chamberlain, or else something like it may happen again. The book closes with a letter written by a woman in Tennessee whose daughter is developing incredibly strong advanced telekinetic abilities as well. So we're going to get into it uh, with the, uh, the synopsis out of the way. Um, so I'm going to be honest, this is now actually the second time I'm recording this episode. Uh, the, the first episode that I recorded was my first attempt ever at, at doing a podcast. Um, since then, I've recorded uh, next week's episode, which will be the, um, the review of the, the Brian De Palma and the Kimberly Pierce uh, Carrie adaptations. And then I, I've also recorded the Salem's Lot uh, review. Uh, so by the time I, I, I finished the, the Salem's Lot one, I, I, I learned a lot. And when I went back and I listened to the, the, the first one that I did, it was awful. And I couldn't, I couldn't um, put everyone through it. Just I, I was playing with the microphone. I was, I was changing the gain, which, made, which meant that uh, the sound fluctuates. Um, you can hear where I cut um, and split the track. It's just, from a technical standpoint, it's a disaster. So um, what that means is it's going to sound a little bit better and a little bit more polished, but I'm not going to be able to go into the amount of detail um, the way that I'm going to be able to with next week and, and every other week from this point forward because I can't I can't rehash um, with the same level of detail the way that I did the first time around. Um, but but you you're getting a better podcast for it. Um, but with that said, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump right in now um, to to the review itself. Uh, the first thing that I need to talk about is I grew up in a world where Stephen King was already established. Like I said, there was commercials for his books for God's sakes. Um, so he was already a presence. He was also he was already known as the master of horror. But when Carrie came out, um, that was not the case. He had to start somewhere, um, and it's to me. Carrie is so important to look at from uh, from a cultural standpoint, from uh, just the history of this 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 author's standpoint, and and what it and how it stands up uh, in in the rest of, of his works, 
because in order for him to be the Stephen King that we know, this book had to be effective. It could not fail. Um, if this was not effective, if this did not um, have its finger on the pulse of what people wanted to read at that particular time, um, then Stephen King would not be a presence today. He would not be a Stephen King that we that we know. Um, you know, the hardcore Stephen King fans um, know that uh, you know there are alternate universes out there. Um, using Stephen King language, there are other worlds than these. And right now, there was an alternate world where Stephen King. He wrote Carrie, and it wasn't effective, and people didn't like it, and he just remained um, uh, an English teacher somewhere in Maine, living out his life, uh, you know, in, in, in quiet, uh, you know, solitude, you know, hopefully with Tabitha and the boys um, and Naomi, and uh, but never never to publish again. So thankfully, this book was effective, and, and thank you, Tabitha. I'm going to get to this later, but uh, Tabitha is, is really responsible for everything. Uh, Tabitha being Stephen King's wife. Um, but this was the beginning. This was it for, for Stephen King. It, it put him on the map. Um, the concept is just so, so pure and so powerful. A bullied girl with powers gets revenge. And that's it. It's an elevator pitch. Um, and in terms of Stephen King's works, this sucker is short. Um, the, the edition that I'm reading, it's the it says it's the 1988 signet edition um i don't think that that's necessarily true because the the cover um re refers to stephen king as the author of needful things and needful things came out in 91 or 92 i believe so um if anyone knows what edition i'm actually reading uh please reach out to me the the cover is just you, you don't see much of carrie it's just her face she looks evil she's um it's a fire face with uh with a silhouette of of black hair um, and it says, from the one of the most brilliant imaginations of our time, which is 100% true. So I, as I said, it, uh, um, this is a short novel, which I need to make that distinction because Stephen King is not credited for, uh, for writing short novels. In fact, one of his major criticisms is the fact that, that, that he tends to write a lot. Um, as you know, uh, uh, his later books are, are just, you, you could kill somebody with them um, if you hit them over the head hard enough. Um, so it's, it's very impressive that his first work um, doesn't really share that... Um, that particular writing trait that he develops later in life. Um, but as it, even though it is different um, in terms of its size, it still feels very much like a Stephen King book, even though, as we'll get into, um, it's, it's almost a prototype novel for all of the, the other tropes um, that, that he will begin to um, delve into deeper with his later novels. So I want to take a few moments here to uh, discuss the effectiveness of this as the opening salvo um, into the, the the works of Stephen King, as well as the effectiveness of the opening of of the the novel itself. Um, right now, it is summer of 2014, and uh, a movie, Guardians of the Galaxy, just came out last week, in which starred a CGI tree and a talking raccoon. Um, right, and it it. It exploded. People love this movie. It made a ton of money. Um, and the reason I bring this up is because that is a um, it's a Marvel Comics property, and the the fact that a movie starring a a, a talking raccoon and a, a CGI tree um, it made so much money. It, it's proof that that superheroes and superpowers and that kind of imagination is in you know movies like X Men. Um, you know, the Avengers, the Hulk, Captain America, uh, you know, Batman, Superman. It, it's it's all part of our culture now. Uh, in 1974, when this came out, this, it, I mean, certainly th there had been stories of of powers before, but not to the extent the, the, of, of how it exists now. Now it's permeated all aspects of, of our culture, but not then. Um, so I just, I really need to stress this um, because as I said, this, this really does function as an elevator pitch, which he's able to expand on very, very well. Um, so I know uh, you're not supposed to judge a book by a cover, but I, I'm so guilty of that. Um, and, and there's, a, there's a couple things that we do. I think when we go into Barnes and Noble, um, you know, there's so many books now and, 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 and the cover is important. And, and if you're interested in the cover, what do you do? You pick it up, you read what the, the publisher has to say about it and, and the synopsis. And then typically you'll open up the to the first page 
and you'll start reading. And, uh, you know, a lot of words have been written and a lot of arguments have been made about the importance of the opening line uh, and the first few sentences um, and its importance as a hook in order to hook the reader into your story because, uh, you know, you have to get the reader right away. Um, so I want to do that because Stephen King, uh, this, was his first, this was his first work, so we need to see how we were, he was able to, to hook the reader. So on page three of, of my edition, this is how it starts. This is it. News item from the Westover, Maine Weekly Enterprise, August 19th, 1966. Rain of stones reported. It was reliably reported by several persons that a rain of stones fell from a clear blue sky on Carlin Street in the town of Chamberlain on August 17th. The stones fell principally on the home of Mrs. Margaret White, damaging the roof extensively and ruining two gutters and a downspout valued at an approximately $25. Mrs. White, a widow, lives with her three-year-old daughter, Carietta. Mrs. White could not be reached for comment. So right away, uh... You have a an opening that that makes you wonder what is going on. It's a great mysterious hook because typically I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, uh, stones don't fall fall out of the sky, um, and so it makes me want to continue reading to see what is going on here. He then uh, goes on to describe uh, what will become an incredibly iconic scene popularized in the 1976 Brian De Palma film by the same name. Um, and it starts, nobody was really surprised when it happened, not really, not at the subconscious level where savage things grow. On the surface, all the girls in the shower room were shocked, thrilled, ashamed, or simply glad that the white bitch had taken it in the mouth again. And then uh, he goes on to describe the, just the, the ugly truths of, of high school and the, 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 the uglier side of humanity, um, by which I mean uh, bullies. And, and how uh, one bully can affect others and um, just the, the, the group mentality um, that, that can turn on, on an innocent victim, uh, and in this case, Carrie. But uh, it's, it's a great scene because he's, he's in this scene. He, uh, he's, he demonstrates how, how Carrie is different um, because she has her period. She has no idea what's going on. She freaks out. Um, and, and she, he's really able to create, um, just a lot of confusion in that scene, but establish at the same time, a lot of sympathy for the character when everyone starts to gang up on her, start throwing tampons at her. It's a horrible thing. Um, and it's one of the reasons why it's so effective is because he's able to then in, in the same scene, start to have her demonstrate in what she calls flexing her, her telekinetic, um, muscles, so to speak, um, but he doesn't focus on that. He focuses on the pain that she is feeling, and he's able to have us connect to to her because we've either all experienced bullying, uh, experienced bullying, been bullies ourselves at some point, or or seen um, someone else be bullied. So it's it's something that um, while we won't be able to relate to the level of Carrie, we will be able to relate on some level. Um, and that is why the, the book is what it is and why the story continues to this day, why uh, there was just a, a movie released, a, re, um, a, a remake, uh, this past October. So if you're reading this, uh, you know the, the big plot points. Um, I'm not really going to go into them. I'm just going to focus on the characters because it's the characters that, that make Stephen King Stephen King. A lot of people talk about the blood and the guts and, ooh, I don't like it. Um, and I get that, but I, I don't tend to think of blood and guts when I think of Stephen King. Um, he's not a sadistic writer. He's not someone. He's not some masochist that that revels in torturing the characters that that he creates. In fact, he he creates characters that y you can imagine running into on the street and and feel familiar to you. He, he's able to depict um, pretty accurate representations of of real life. Um, and real life has real people, and the characters in his novels feel real. And so it's his character work that keeps drawing me back. And it's one of the reasons why I think Stephen King is a household name, um, more so than I would say, um, uh, you know, Dean Koontz. And nothing against Dean Koontz. I love his stuff, but his stuff tends to be more plot-driven and more um, premise-driven, whereas Stephen King's works are always grounded with the character work. So um, during these podcasts, we're going to do a lot of, of analysis on the characters and how they interact with each other because um, 
you know, as as you'll see, not so much in this case, but in the in the more upcoming works, he believes in people. He believes in the strength of people, and um, even though he writes about the supernatural, he he believes in the strength of humanity, um, and in that strength. That's when humanity is able to to beat back those supernatural threats and the boogeymen that go bump in the night. Now, as I'm on this subject, it's interesting because this is not a supernatural book. Stephen King will be known for his supernatural work, um, but this is sci-fi. Um, this was published in 74. The movie comes out in 76, but the story itself takes place in 79. So this is uh, a few years removed from the present that he was currently writing in. Um, and this is not uh, explained with supernatural means. Uh, I know that Margaret White talks about the devil a lot, but uh, Carrie is not conceived by the devil. This is not Rosemary's baby. This is not um, Damien Thorne from The Omen. This is not, uh, you know, the exorcist here. This is something that is explained through science um, as seen in the... the um, the informational text excerpts um, scattered throughout the, the the novel itself. So um, it's funny that the guy known as the master of horror started out with what is, in essence, a, a sci-fi novel. Um, now, with that said, I want to talk about some of the the main characters here. Um, so I'll, I'll start with uh, with Tommy. Now, Tommy is your typical popular uh, senior. He's the jock. He's the prom king. But uh, King makes great pains to establish that he can't be defined by preconceived notions and describes his IQ score, his artistic side, and his bright future. Furthermore, he seems driven with a moral compass that sets him apart from the other characters, by which I mean when he decides to take Carrie to the prom, does he do it for Sue or does he do it for himself because he decides it's the right thing to do based on his own morals, not Sue's? Now, if Chris is the dark reflection of Sue, as I believe she is, then Billy is the dark reflection of Tommy. Just as the novel starts with Chris in control of Billy, then reversing to the point where she has no control, the plan seems to start with the prompt by Sue to the point where Tommy is acting independently of Sue and making decisions because of what he thinks is right. The glaring question, though, here is, when at the prom, when Stephen King describes the feelings of the characters, he establishes that Tommy is falling for Carrie. Until that point, we had seen Carrie imprint her feelings upon others. The question is, are Tommy's feelings genuine, or is he feeling what he's feeling because that's what Carrie wants him to feel? That's a dangerous thought, and one that isn't explicitly answered. Now, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on Tommy. Um, I just think of all the characters in the novel his actions are are relatively just um much much more so than those of his girlfriend uh sue snell who i'm going to talk about now um now i i don't know how everyone feels about this character or what king intends for us to feel about this character but as the novel progressed i came to question her motives and had deep-seated reservations about her first i do not believe she's as altruistic as she thinks she is the question is is she as altruistic as king thinks she is whether she accepts blame or not, I need to point out that it was her plan for Tommy to bring Carrie to the prom. And the only reason she does this, according to the character, is to make amends for the locker room incident of which she was a part. Um, now, I, I couldn't help but think that this was the act of a clueless, selfish, and manipulative individual who didn't realize just how selfish or manipulative she is. Why go through the pains of creating this big show of her boyfriend taking the ugly duckling when she could just go to Carrie, apologize, and get to know her like a normal person? King takes us, um, he takes his time to give us Sue's inner thoughts, in which she fears every step she takes will lead her down the road of post-high school mediocrity, the life of someone who peaked at the prom, and it certainly makes sense for her to sacrifice her moment at the prom, but even that reeks of selflessness. Um... I guess, is she truly asking Tommy to take Carrie to atone for her sins? Or simply because this is her way of giving the middle finger to the fate she's afraid of being trapped in? So once I started to question Sue, the only thing I could think of was the character Marnie from the television show Girls. Uh, that character played expertly by Allison Williams is a young woman who believes that her actions are completely selfless yet every action she takes establishes just how self-centered she is I just couldn't help but picture her the entire time I read Sue now that leads to a much bigger question um and it isn't so much her inability to see her own selfishness um but whether or not she is an unreliable narrator in order to explore this question, we need to look at the structure of the novel itself. Now, Carrie is composed of newspaper articles, nonfiction book excerpts, and question and answers. 
All of those excerpts are documented, but what isn't documented is what we assume to be the fictional narrative describing the actions and thoughts of Carrie and the rest of the townspeople. One way of reading this is that this narrative is the cake and everything else is the frosting. But another way of reading it is that everything is compiled from various sources, with the bulk of the text being an unnamed novel that we read as Carrie. The question is, who wrote it? And what if the actions of the characters aren't exactly as depicted? What if what we assume is the novel is actually the novelization of the movie that Sue explains was made after the events of the Chamberlain tragedy? If one views it through that lens, then everything we've read is up for grabs. And this allows for my greater question. Is Sue Snell an unreliable narrator? If what we read as Carrie by Stephen King is what we think it is, then Sue's actions are true. But if the fictional narrative is fiction within the world of this book, then we never know what Sue's actual thoughts are, aside from what she tells us in the excerpts of her autobiography and transcripts from the White Commission. This question is raised on page 89 to 90 in the excerpt from The Shadow Exploded, and I raise this question with the excerpt from My Name is Susan Snell, which, by the way, is an awful name for a book, on page 143, in which she describes a scene that does not take place within the narrative that we had just read. Does this mean that she describes a scene that King omitted for us, or does it mean that she's lying? If she's lying, what else is she lying about? Now, the scene that she's describing is um, just a scene between uh, Tommy and Carrie. But up until that point, we've been seeing every scene with, with Carrie. So it just really makes me question what is going on with this particular character. Um, if she is lying, if she is an unreliable narrator, an unreliable narrator, to me, it makes a lot more sense. Um, because the idea that she forfeits her spot to the prom and her boyfriend agrees to take Carrie to me is ludicrous. It's much easier to believe that she was in on an ugly prank against Carrie, the likes of which are unfortunately seen in our society often from frat rituals, um, and popularized in the movie Dinner with Schmucks. So regardless, uh, what we know is that Sue and Carrie meet before Carrie dies, and when Carrie dies, she takes with her Sue's unborn child, thereby robbing her of the future she had been so deeply afraid of, and replaces that child with the stigma of victimization because from that point forward, Sue is a scapegoat for the whole affair and is persecuted by the members of the White Commission and others, thereby establishing that the cycle of bullying continues, albeit in another form. So we, we have our other characters in the novel, um, and one thing that King is great at is is creating um, secondary and tertiary characters that just pop off the page. You know, he, he doesn't have to do these things, but the reason he does these things makes Stephen King Stephen King. Um, and he gives just you know parts of the town backstories. Uh, for instance, um, Kelly's Fruit Stand, I think the name of it is. It has this backstory about how it's now the only place for the kids to go because the previous place, there was like a drug bust. And so little things like that make the town feel lived in. And he's going to take this concept and really run with it in his next book, um, Salem's Lot. But the characters themselves just really crackle. Um, you know, I, I've already talked about, you know, Sue and Tommy. Um, you know, you have Billy the Greaser, uh, who is just this ridiculous, over-the-top uh, character. I think problematic in a lot of ways um, due to his actions against Chris and how we're supposed to feel about Chris. It makes me very uncomfortable, um, and, I, and I applaud both De Palma and Kimberly Pierce in their depictions of Chris and Billy um, in the movies, uh, because as awful as the character Chris is, um, her abuse at the hands of Billy, uh, as I said, just, just makes me feel uncomfortable. Now, Chris is an awful character, um, and at, at the start of the, the, the novel, um, she is in control of Billy, and she's manipulating Billy, but by the end of the novel, she is not in control. Billy is control. Um, and to me, that, that, that serves as a foil to Carrie herself because just as Chris loses control of Billy, so does Carrie lose control of her telekinesis. Um, now, Chris is the stand-in of every bully we've ever met, just a horrible person that loves picking on others. And, uh, you know, there's really not much to say. Bullying is is awful. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing that has really... Um, it, it's existed forever. It exists in a, in a very ugly, 
public um, uh, way nowadays where anything that happens can be videoed, videotaped, uh, recorded on, on your phone, uploaded, and it can stick forever, whereas in 1974, uh, not necessarily the case. But still, the, the, the idea of one person making the decision to negatively impact the life of another um, is something that is as relevant in 74 as it is today. And um, I, I think that one of the reasons why, why Carrie resonates and endures is because that it's something that is unfortunately always going to, um, to be able to be related to. Now, um, I've talked about Sue, I've talked about Tommy, uh, I've talked about Billy and Chris. I'm not going to go into too much detail about Billy and Chris, but, uh, you know, there's two characters left that I really want to talk about here. One is Margaret, who's insane, and she's the, the first of the Stephen King characters, uh, these larger-than-life um, villains. Um, Margaret's just crazy, you know? I mean, I don't think that King is trying to make any sort of statement on religion because basically this religion uh, is, is not a religion at all. It's just, it's, it's, it's mania. It's, it's insanity dressed up in religion, and it, it warps what, what should be beautiful. You know, I, I think that if Carrie had been born into another family and she demonstrated her powers, um, you know, if she was being raised by by kind religious people, she would be seen as an angel and a miracle. But instead, under the under the house of of Margaret White, she's seen as devil spawn. Um, and Margaret's twisted, twisted, twisted. Um, and it's just it's tragic um, what happens to Carrie. Um, she has no relief anywhere she goes. She's bullied at school because of her mother's strange values, and she comes home and and she's abused by her mother for how she acts at school and and how she acts at at home and she's locked in a closet and it's horrible it's a horrible life um and it's sad it's 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 definitely sad to see and at next week when we get into the movies um you'll see that margaret is brought to life in both adaptations um very wonderfully first by piper laurie then by uh julianne moore which uh takes us to our our our, our main character, Carrie White, the tragic and sad Carrie White, who um, is the stand-in of, of anyone that's ever been bullied. And um, it's just sad. It, like I said, it's tragic. But the, the thing that I really want to focus in here is, is Carrie's own culpability. Um, that I, I think that, yes, we are supposed to feel sympathetic for Carrie, but by the end of the novel, Carrie makes a decision. Carrie decides to go back to the prom after the, the, the incident at the prom, after the, the blood is dropped on her. She leaves. Um, eyewitnesses uh, describe how she leaves. She trips, but she leaves the building, and only once when she's outside, she stops and she makes the decision to go back and teach them a lesson. So I don't know the, the, the level of control she has at that point. I think that she's in control, and I think that once she starts to unleash her powers, she loses a little bit of control, kind of like she just gets drunk with power. But that, um, but that, initial, that initial act, it's all her. She's, she's conscientious of it, um, and at that point, she stops being sympathetic everything from that point yeah sympathetic um and you feel bad for her but i i just i i can't at this point you know uh condone her actions um because what she does is 10 times worse than anything that's been done to her um you know so stephen king is saying you know basically you know this you be careful of what you do because you don't know what you know what your actions will will lead to it's a it's a morality play um but at that point, Carrie stops functioning as an actual character, and she starts functioning as, as um, you know, as as a as a plot point, as as a moral um, to to stand by and and to just you know basically watch out for because this is what what can happen is what he's saying. Now I'm going to talk about uh, the tone um, because as we all know, Stephen King is the master of horror, but horror doesn't. 
um, need blood and guts to be effective. You know, I, I would rather Stephen King be known as the master of terror because with this novel, he effectively creates a terrific tension and looming dread that just builds and builds and builds. Uh, on page 85, he establishes a timeline that might as well be a ticking clock. We have one week until the prom. Combined with our knowledge that something occurs, we know that we only have so much time left with the characters before the tragedy, whatever it may be, and whatever shape it may take, strikes. Now, from a structural standpoint, the narrative decisions that Stephen King makes is genius. He gives us all the puzzle pieces, and with every chapter, starts to fit them together until the pieces reveal that iconic image of a blood-drenched Carrie White and the unfortunate souls that happen to get in the way of her rage. The end result is never a mystery, but everything leading up to the end and the events of the end are mysterious. Knowing the end never takes away from the tension, but instead helps build it. Not only is he able to build attention, he's able to create a sense of menacing dread that reminded me of the works of David Lynch. Um, on page 161, we see uh, various characters in the novel as Carrie ascends her throne as prom queen. Now, specifically, we get Sue Snell, who is filled with an overwhelming sensation of wrongness. Um, and, and she's basically saying, um, she says there's no reason why she should feel that the world is about to come to an end, even though it is. Um, Chamberlain's about to get wiped out from the map, but for all she knows, everything is fine. She shouldn't have a reason to think that. Um, and, and mentioning David Lynch, for those of you who don't know, David Lynch is a filmmaker, coffee enthusiast, and part-time musician who gave us Dune, Eraserhead, Wild at Heart, uh, Mulholland Drive, uh, and, and the television show Twin Peaks, which came out in uh, 1990, long after Carrie. So, I mean, it wasn't an influence on, on Carrie, but it just makes me think of, of, of the works of, of David Lynch, particularly in one episode of the show. We check, on, check in on many of the characters in a small northwestern town, in the moments before a murder happens that take place, and, and one by one we see the characters filled with a sensation that they can't quite put their finger on, uh, and then during the murder and in the moments afterwards, we check in on those characters again who are overcome with a looming feeling of horror and dread, unaware of the reasons why. And having that in my mind and having watched that that, that show on, on numerous occasions, in fact, it just came out on Blu-ray, the, the complete um, edition, uh, the entire mystery, and it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. So anyone that has not seen that show, I strongly encourage you to go out and watch it right now, right after the podcast. But it, it just it, it brought me back to that moment that uh, there's something about a town and there's something about the people that populate that town that when something happens, um, it is an organism and it can be felt um, even if you aren't happy, if you don't happen to be there uh, to witness it. Okay, so we're coming to the end of the podcast very shortly, um, but there's a few things that I'm going to do with every episode. Um, now that I you know have read 95% of, of Stephen King's works, um, Reading this, I, I saw a lot of aspects um, that I call kingisms that are going to pop up again and again and again. Now, I consider this very much a prototype for the, the, the themes and the tropes that, that we're going to see explored in, in, in greater detail in his upcoming novels. So it brings us to the segment of, of the Stephen King cast that I like to call Stephen Kingisms. So in this novel, I, I found um, four kingisms, the first of which being characters undergoing a physical transformation. We see this with Margaret when her hair turns white, and we see this exact same scenario play out again with Nadine from The Stand and Henry from It. All three characters' hairs turn white when faced with the unspeakable, that which we can't understand. Now, that's something that we saw a lot of in the works of H.P. Lovecraft, um, and I know that Stephen King um, definitely was influenced in some ways by H.P. Lovecraft, but those... Uh, you don't really see much Lovecraft in the works of Stephen King um, because Lovecraft basically, uh, I don't even want to say that it was about the everyman because it was every character was someone from the academic world. But basically what what really established Lovecraft was um, the, these people would, would brush up against something um, so horrible, so larger than, than us that our consciousness cannot really comprehend what it is that we're brushing up against 
and usually it would it would be uh, just brushing up against it, just getting a glimpse, just getting a hint, um, would be enough to to drive someone to madness. So we see a little bit of that with with Margaret, and then later with Nadine and Henry, once they brush up against something that they can't truly comprehend and understand, something outside of the the logical world that we've built for ourselves, it it, it causes a physical transformation in us. Um, and aside from the the white hair, uh, we see. Uh, you know, we see transformations occur um, with his characters. We we see it through Harold in the stand, um, the main character from Christine, and and other characters. So it's definitely something that we're going to be seeing again. Now, number two, the number two Stephen Kingism found within Carrie. It's the first time, but it's not going to be the last time uh, in the work of a Stephen King that we see the greaser as the villain. Um, as represented here today um, by Billy Nolan, but we're going to see it again um, with Ace Merrill in The Body and in Needful Things, um, and Henry Bowers in It. I don't know if, if there was a bully in his life uh, that was a greaser, but the, the greaser archetype as villain is definitely something that's going to pop up again. Uh, which brings us to number three, Kingism, which is uh, the government's question on whether or not it has the right to suppress telekinetic power um, or other powers that the everyman does not have. Um, now, this is very specific to one particular work that's going to be coming up, and that is Firestarter. Um, on page 225 of my edition of, of Carrie, um, one of the informational texts, um, the, the author um, posits whether or not the government has the right to control uh, potential superpowered beings by putting a bullet through the brain. And this idea of suppression, government suppression of telekinetic, um, pyrokinetic, other, other types of powers will be explored in Firestarter. The government itself will... Um, uh, have an organization known as the Shop, which was uh, which was a group um, that was uh, that King flirted with for a couple novels that I was really really into, um, and then just he just dropped it. Um, there was I don't know if it was a bad breakup I don't, I don't know, but uh, he he never talked about them again. Um, but the the Shop pops up in Firestarter, it pops up in Tommyknockers, uh, the movie adaptation of The Lawnmower Man actually featured the shop. So I, I was a fan of the shop. I wonder if when the X-Files came out and government conspiracies, uh, you know, came into flavor, if he just said, you know, it, you know, the, the shop isn't really that much different from those and he decided to go in a different direction. I don't know. But I liked the shop. Um, and I liked the, the whole concept uh, behind them, which ties into uh, to what we see here in, in Carrie. And then number four, uh, the car. The car is a metaphor for the driver, um, as seen on page 136, in which uh, Billy the Greaser um, is driving his car, and King spends time describing how that car really is an extension of him. Now, as we will see with Christine, and we will see from a Buick 8 and Mr. Mercedes, um, King has a thing about cars, Um and then in life, later in life, he will have a valid reason to explore the car as evil. But he, he definitely explores the relationship and the early work between the car and the driver. Um, this this case with uh, with Billy, really the, this relationship, this unhealthy relationship, and one being the extension of the other is something that he's going to take um, and, and, and build as his central premise for the Stephen King classic, Christine. Now, I... Uh... I have talked a lot about Carrie, but I want the author <clears throat> to have the final word on, on Carrie here. So I'm going to uh, read an excerpt from Stephen King's memoir and guide uh, on writing. While he was going to college, my brother Dave worked summers as a janitor at Brunswick High. For part of one summer, I worked there too. One day I was supposed to scrub the rust stains off the walls in the girls' shower. I noticed that the showers, unlike those in the boys' locker room, had chrome U-rings with pink plastic curtains attached. This memory came back to me one day while I was working in the laundry, and I started seeing the opening scene of a story. Girls showering in a locker room where there were no U-rings, pink plastic curtains, or privacy. And this one girl starts to have her period. Only she doesn't know what it is, and the other girls, grossed out, horrified, amused, start pelting her with sanitary napkins. The girl begins to scream, all that blood. 
I'd read an article in Life magazine some years before suggesting that at least some reported poltergeist activity might actually be telekinetic phenomenon, telekinesis being the ability to move objects just by thinking about them. There was some evidence to suggest that young people might have such powers, the article said, especially girls and early adolescents, right around the time of their first POW! Two unrelated ideas, adolescent cruelty and telekinesis, came together and I had an idea. Before I had completed two pages, ghosts of my own began to intrude, the ghosts of two girls, both dead, who eventually combined to become Carrie White. I will call one of them Tina White and the other Sandra Irving. Tina went to Durham Elementary School with me. There was a goat in every class, the kid who was always left without a chair in musical chairs, the one who winds up wearing the kick me hard sign, the one who stands at the other end of the pecking order. This was Tina. Not because she was stupid, she wasn't, and not because her family was peculiar, it was, but because she wore the same clothes to school every day. Sandra Irving lived about a mile and a half from the house where I grew up. Mrs. Irving hired me one day to help her move some furniture. I was struck by the crucifix hanging in the living room, over the Irving couch. If such a gigantic icon had fallen when the two of them were watching TV, the person it fell on would almost certainly have been killed. I did a three-single-space page of a first draft, then crumpled them up in disgust and threw them away. The next night, when I came home from school, my wife Tabby had the pages. She'd spied them while emptying my wastebasket, had shaken the cigarette ashes off the crumpled balls of paper, smoothed them out, and sat down to read them. She wanted me to go on. She wanted to know the rest of the story. So thank you, Tabitha. Thank you. Um, if you hadn't done that, I don't know. Stephen King might just have continued uh, being an English teacher, smoking his butts, um, living his life, and, and not affecting the, the general population the, the way that he did um, had you not um, fished them out. So thank you um, for that. So that's it. That brings us to the end of our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining me for my first foray into the podcasting world. I hope you enjoyed it, and please feel free to send an email on any of the thoughts discussed during the course of this podcast. Do you think Sue Snell is an unreliable narrator? What's your first experience with Stephen King? What influence has he had on you? Do you have a favorite excerpt from the text? Don't hold these thoughts in. Share, constant reader, share. You can reach me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. For all intents and purposes, this is where the podcast ends. For fans of The Dark Tower, please stick around after the credits where I discuss unexplored possibilities that had not been addressed by King in continuity. If this does not make any sense, don't worry. The podcast's over. If it does make sense, stick around. Next week, I'll examine the two film adaptations of Carrie. First, the 1976 Brian De Palma classic, along with the 2013 Kimberly Pierce remake. I hope to see you all next week, and until then, keep the lights on. To play us out, here's one of Carrie's favorite songs, as evidenced from her own journal, Bob Dylan's Just Like a Woman. Nobody feels any pain Tonight is Austin inside the rain Everybody knows that baby's got new clothes but lately So okay everyone, those of you who are sticking around, you guys are hardcore Stephen King fans. You know who you are. I mentioned the Dark Tower and you came running like the last gunslinger out of Gilead. As you know, there are many different kinds of fans of Stephen King. There's your average fans who know of King and have been scared by a few of his movies. That's great! I'd say that these fans are on the first floor of the tower, gathered in the lobby. Then you have the fans who have read a handful of the books and seen a number of the movies. These fans occupy the first few levels of the tower. You go higher up and you find the fans that have read all of the books. But at the topmost level of the tower, however, you find one particular kind of fan. And that is the Dark Tower fan. The fans that scoured every page of every King book, short story, poem, novella, and interview for tidbits and references for meaning. You looked for connections. You examined the clues. You had your own quest to find the tower, a quest just as authentic as Roland's. So for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, The Dark Tower is a series of novels written by Stephen King beginning with The Gunslinger and concluding with The Dark Tower. It spans seven novels which followed Roland, The Last Gunslinger, in his attempt to reach The Dark Tower, a structure that just so happens to be the linchpin of the multiverse. 
starring a main character with traits combining Clint Eastwood, an Arthurian knight, a Jedi knight. It included monsters, talking trains, mutants, wizards, robot bears, sorcerers, kings, queens, treachery, reincarnation, karmic balance, the mafia, oracles, and spider babies. To say the least, for fans that were looking for scares set within a recognizable world, the Dark Tower saga was a bit off-putting. To make it more intimidating, to get the most out of The Dark Tower, you also have had to read every other Stephen King novel and a novel that he co-wrote with another author. I'll get into The Dark Tower when it's time to get to The Dark Tower, but in the meantime, I want to talk about the beams. If you're one of the uninitiated, picture The Dark Tower as a pin in the center of everything. Spanning out from the top of the tower, shoot 12 intangible beams that hold up the multiverse. In the Dark Tower storyline, an evil being known as the Crimson King is determined to destroy the universe and conquer the tower by destroying the beams. Destroy the beams, the tower will fall. But how do you knock down the beams? Why, the breakers, of course. Breakers are people with special abilities, mental powers, psychics, pyrokinetics, empaths, and telekinetics. The reason I'm discussing the tower here is because, as far as I know, King never references Carrie as being a breaker. Now, I understand that Carrie is dead by the time we first encounter Roland, so the Crimson King could never have captured her to destroy the beams, but as we all know, there are other worlds than these, and it wouldn't be hard to imagine Roland and company, when freeing the breakers to run into an alternate reality's version of Carrie, who came from a world where Chris convinced Billy that they shouldn't slaughter the pigs. Or even better, a world where Carrie was raised by Margaret White unburdened from mental instability. Understandably, this sounds like fan fiction, but King referenced so many other of his characters, I find it to be a missed opportunity for him to somehow include the girl that put him on the map in the first place. Considering that by the end of The Dark Tower, he very publicly discussed retirement, it would have been fitting for him to incorporate Carrie in the end. I, for one, would have enjoyed uh, for the Tahin to mention how they missed snatching the most powerful breaker before she died, or as I said, an alternate version of Carrie who saves Roland, therefore the multiverse, and thereby redeeming the actions of the Carrie we know from this book. Having not read The Dark Tower in a while, I don't recall any mention of Carrie. I could be 100% wrong. If I am wrong, please reach out to me and let me know. So that's it. That's the end, the real end of the first podcast. Feel free to reach out to me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com, and I will see you here next week.